Hello and welcome to the Salty Club podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Creeper, and I am here today with Rayanne Mustafa. Rayanne, welcome to the show, finally. Thank you so much. I feel so good to be here. We're so happy to have you finally. Like, our community might already know you because of the primal movement that you do in the club. But for those who don't know you yet, could you share with us a little bit about what you do and, and who you are? Yeah, so um, I feel so just stoked to be part of the Salty community now in general, just because I've admired from afar for so long. So it feels so good to actually be part of the family. Um, but hello, everyone. So for those who don't know me, my name is Ray, I, or Ray Ann, but I go by Ray. Um, I have been kind of dabbled in a bunch of different fields. It's kind of hard to identify myself now at this moment. I'm in a little bit of a transition in my life. Um, but I had ran a startup for six years prior, um, just had recently shut that down. It was all about upcycling and food waste. Um, but I've been into surfing for over 10 years now and have been into fitness and movement along that journey for, again, maybe I'd say 10 or so years. And then just recently, the last couple of years really got into mobility training and just saw how incredible it had had an effect not only on my body, not only on the cross training that I was doing with lifting weights, but also with my surfing and got introduced to animal flow, which has been absolutely game changer and has just made me fall in love with movement all over again, as surfing has done as well. And now I would say I identify myself as a trash artist, which means I make art pieces from trash to inspire people to think about our plastic consumption. Amazing. And could you talk a little bit about your journey with um, your awareness and your advocacy for plastic consumption? Did it start as early as childhood? Is it something that you kind of learned along the way? Can you talk a little bit about your your process with that? Yeah, so I would say I was kind of like a freak kid. <laughs> um, I literally just had seen, for me, it started, I had seen a picture of a polar bear. Um, it was a stunning photograph of a malnourished polar bear uh, clinging desperately to a tiny ice block. And what that photo had done for me, it had evoked this intense emotional cord in my heart. It was like a direct line to my heart saying that like, we humans have such a direct correlation with the actions of our planet. And I think maybe I didn't understand climate change or global warming at such a young age. I was nine years old, I believe at the time when I'd seen that. But I was able to just kind of get the grasp of, you know, every action has multiple reactions. And so ever since then, I kind of became like a little freak in my family, like turning off all the lights and shutting off the water when my mom's washing dishes and, you know, and my sister's brushing her teeth, I'd be like, you don't need to keep the faucet on. And so um, I've kind of just always been inspired in that way. And then, you know, as time has grown and with education and real time experience being in the water and seeing the crazy amounts of pollution, I think that that you know, connection to sustainability only heightened. And so, um, yeah, I, I, my story started when I was really young, but honestly with that polar bear. And I think that that's why I'm so inspired to make art now because I had seen that what it could do, you know, we're so malleable at such kids, like we're really impressionable when we're so young. And I think I was like a prime example of that, of how just one simple photograph literally, you know, changed the trajectory of my life mission and who I am today. And so, you know, I think that that continually inspires me that, you know, if my art pieces can just inspire just one person to change their lives, you know, think of the ripple effect that that could have. So um, I think that's really where I've been putting my focus as of lately. Mm -hmm. I think 
a lot of us from a young age have those experiences because we don't have that filter up yet of kind of justifying why it happens or, you know, just the the biases that we kind of absorb. Like I remember for me, like one of my earliest, not earliest memories, but one of those kind of memories was I was driving with my family in the city and I was just watching this man and he just like went up to a trash can and got a bag of food out of like the trash can and went and sat down and started eating it. And like, I just didn't understand why that was happening yet. It kind of shows where I grew up in suburban Australia that it was so, (laughs) oh my gosh, to me. But And I just remember crying all the way home and being like to my mom, why was he grabbing food out of the bin? Because we don't have those those things up yet in our mind, which kind of justifies it or like lets us get through the day. Absolutely. And I think that also goes to show that, you know, you at that age and kids at that age have so much compassion and the amount of empathy that we can hold at that age is truly so telling. And then for some reason, we harden as we get older, right? You know, things just, we become desensitized and we get hardened. So I think that that's also just so beautiful and telling of who you are as a person. (laughs) Well, thank you. When you were growing up, was your family kind of very conscious with food? Was, Was it more of a, like a wasteful energy? What what kind of was the attitude around waste and food waste in your house growing up? Before I answer that, I'll just, you know, foreshadow and say food waste was such a theme in my life, right? I had started a business around food waste. Um, but growing up, actually, I had, I had grown up in Southern California. And I will say like, I had a house over my head and I had food to eat, but we definitely came from a struggling household. I had a single mom and She had worked really hard to ensure that we had enough food on our plates. So the very idea of wasting food for me as a child just was unimaginable. And it did not come from a sustainability aspect. It came from an actual necessity aspect of like, you know, every dollar matters. And so the food that's on this table, you're going to eat every last bit of it because, Mm -hmm. you know, um, just seeing how hard my mom worked and seeing that struggle. So I, for me, I, even now as an adult, I really had to, you know, work my mind around the scarcity mentality because I think I had grown up with it and Mm -hmm. it really affected me. And so um, I would say, you know, it wasn't a sustainability and environmentalism at all. wasn't a conversation in my house. I definitely had like led that. Um, But we definitely had this idea of waste because of money and consciousness in that sense. So I think when you marry those two together, you get as your byproducts of someone who's you know very passionate about waste to begin with but then also can see the sustainability um correlations as well yeah totally I think almost in my family because we we um we like lost our whole business we we had a phase of a few years of really struggling there was four kids and it's almost like I remember that phase of kind of being like yeah there's no food waste you don't but then going to another chapter in our lives where suddenly we were having more income and it was almost like this pendulum swinging, swinging the other mm-hmm. way of being like respecting food less almost because there was now mm-hmm. like almost like an influx of like what we were able to get, not significantly, but more than what we had. And so I feel like throughout my life, I have gone through periods of like, um, yes, really that every little bit needs to count versus almost this luxurious feeling of food mm-hmm. waste, you know, and then swinging back here to living in Central America and watching how my partner's family treats food. It's like, you'll be served something one day. And then the next day we might blend it up and it goes back into like as the base for another recipe. And then everything comes out on the table night after night until everything's gone. This thing of throwing out food is unheard of. So it's been really great to kind of experience all sides of it. But then at the same time, when I go back to Australia for visits, 
there's also again like oh wow you just threw out that perfectly good half plate of food and so it's very interesting kind of dipping in and out of these different perspectives and really seeing where I stand in relation to that Mm -hmm. yeah and I think also food waste is so cultural too and geographical right you know so like you said, I, I'm sure, you know, where you're living in South America is way differently economically standards compared to Australia. Mm-hmm. So you see that, you know, like I, my parents were born in Syria. And so I was, I'm first generation American. And so I grew up most of my life in Southern California, but my mom, I will say, had done an amazing job sending us to Syria in the summer times so that we could get this duality of experience. And so when we had gone to Syria too, like the idea of waste again was unimaginable. It's just not something that you typically do. And so I think us, you know, privileged countries, it's, you know, I think that's just obvious that we just waste so much food and not only food, but just things in general. Mm-hmm. I, I was actually going to ask about that, about um, how your mum kind of kept your tie to Syria, to that culture, how she kind of incorporated it into your life growing up. Like, do you feel like your Syrian culture is a big part of you or do you feel like a bit disconnected from it? Like, where do you feel like you stand in relation to that? Great question. Um so being completely honest, when I was a kid, I was a little brat. You know, all I wanted to do was just be like in a normal American kid. I was like, oh, why doesn't my yeah. mom put PB&Js in my sand, like my lunchbox? Why do I have to have like this hummus and falafel? <laughs> um, but I will say that like looking back in retrospect, you know, now, especially with everything that had happened in Syria, the complete devastation of the beautiful country, I think I'm so, so grateful because growing up in Southern California, even though we struggled, we still had it better than, you know, a lot of people in the world. And so having the duality of experiences where there's like, you know, 10 of the cousins sleeping in one room or just seeing poverty on a level that you've never experienced. And then also being kind of an outlier, right? Like I, I do have Middle Eastern roots, but I'm fair skinned. I have light eyes, my hair is lighter. And so I stand out extremely, my sister and I both stood out quite a, a bit there. And so the amount of just feeling like an outlier, I think, is very important. And realizing that you're a, mini- a minority somewhere else mm-hmm. makes you realize how big the world is. Because I think when you know, you're know you a kid, sometimes you might, coming from a privileged background, you might not understand that the world is so much bigger out there. <laughs> but then having going to the Middle East so many times and realizing um, that the world is so much bigger than ourselves, I think, really gave us... Um, I think, yeah, just really tied into, I'm, I'm so thankful that my mom had done that. And again, like, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to visit again with the instability that's going on in the Middle East. So yeah, I'm so thankful. And and she would always try and speak Arabic in the house and have us listen to Arabic music and all those things. And I would just be like, I want to speak. I was so embarrassed. My last name is Mustafa. And like, that's a very Arab name. Um, so I would try to ignore that quite a bit. But now I'm like, yeah, Middle Eastern. I try, I wear that flag loud and proud. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? The perspective we get once we get older and we experience different cultures and then like realize just how important it is to have multiple languages and how special it is. And it's funny that kind of reclamation that comes like that you kind of pushed away for so long to be like, wow, this is actually really incredible that I have this lineage and I have this this story and it's not the same as all my friends and that's okay. That's even better. Absolutely. If I could tell my past self that, I'd be like, calm down. I love it. I would like to talk briefly about your your cookie company because I know that that was six years and just from what I've gleaned is that was an important chapter in your life and also you know 
even even in retrospect, it can it can bring up some emotions, right? Like the paths we did not take. Um, yes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that journey as well, about creating the company, and also what I feel like people don't talk about enough is this decision to close it. You know, this mm-hmm. thing that we have to open things and hold on to them forever, but actually knowing actually this could be a good option, and it, it's not. But I'm actually going to walk away from it, and how I'm going to be mm-hmm. okay with that. Yeah, totally. Well, I'll be. I mean, I, I'm super transparent and I'll be honest with you that I am not fully over the grieving process, right? And it's been over a year and a half now, I think. So I still go through my ups and downs. I think just the other day I saw, I post on my Instagram story because I went, I've been out of the country for a year, or at least out of the US for a year. And then I went back and I saw this other vegan cookie company that was gluten-free vegan and they were up and rising right when we were. And I saw them at Sprouts and Sprouts is like, equivalent to a whole foods it's like a very you know trendy grocery store and if you get in there it's pretty it's a huge accomplishment and when we were starting and like you know they were pretty relatively on the same plane as us but then when we had shut down and everything I just kind of ignored that I haven't gone on LinkedIn I was like I need to take Mm -hmm. a professional break go surf in the mentalized for a year go follow my dreams that's what I did and then I went back to visit and I just bald crying and I was like oh my god and like it just brought up so many emotions and I was like man I thought I did so much therapy I did so much healing work all these things um so I'll be honest I'm still grieving and I don't know maybe ask me in five years when I'm fully fully over it but um I can give the audience quite a just a quick brief of you know what we did and and how it all started so I was just working as a waitress at a restaurant in Southern California and I had totally lied on my application just so I could get a job as a waitress <laughs> because in the US we make so much in tips and I need to pay up that college debt so you got to do something so got in the job and the reason why I mentioned that is because I had virgin eyes going into the food industry and I think that that's really important because I was actually just talking to a friend about this yesterday that sometimes we focus so much on experience in one field, but there's actually a benefit to coming in and not having experience in that field and having fresh eyes, a fresh perspective, you know, almost like the way I describe is I walked into the the back of the kitchen one night, beginning of my waitressing career. And I had seen, you know, the chefs throwing away all this food. And I was like, what are you guys doing? (laughs) Why are you throwing this food away? And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like talking to the other waitresses and I was like, oh my God, did you see like chef was throwing all this food? And they're like, uh, yeah, Ray, like, welcome to working in the food <laughs> industry. Like, where have you been? And these are seasoned, you know, servers. They've been waitresses for, you know, anywhere from 14 to 20 years. And it's a good career in a sense. And so they've seen in and out restaurants, people throwing away food. And so, you know, I walked in fresh eyes. I was like, what the F is all of this? So that frustration really kind of... um ate at me, right? Like I, I, you were just speaking about my upbringing and, and not having an abundance of food or an excess by any means. So, and for me, I think that night, I, I, one of the, one of the nights I remember my head chef had thrown away like an entire pot of rice, not even like one serving taken out. And, and then I was leaving the, the restaurant that night and I'd seen a man on the street holding a sign and he was like, I don't need your money. I just need food. And I was like, whoa, this is, a, literally a one minute walk from my restaurant and like we just threw away all this food like the, there's clearly not a lack of supply problem there's a lack of proper infrastructure problem and how do we just connect to these people like to the people you know I was like what is just freaking out you know the gears were turning in my head and I went home that night 
and uh, bantered with my roommate. And she's like, she worked at P.F. Chang's, which is a huge, huge restaurant chain. Well, actually, the, one of the biggest restaurant chains in the U.S. Um, she's like, oh, Ray, like, we w- like hate to tell you this, but like we waste so much rice too. And then like, at that point, at my mom was like, oh, my God, it's not just my restaurant. Imagine all the restaurants that are wasting all this food. And, you know, fast, like I'm going to get to the chase here, but um, I kind of deflected the responsibility onto everybody else. I was like, okay, well, we should call the food banks. We should call the churches. We should call, um, you know, the soup kitchens. They should handle it and and trying to coordinate with them together. But it just never worked out. And at the time, I couldn't figure out why this wasn't working out. Um, And then one night I was scrolling on Instagram, just doom scrolling at night. And I saw one photo single-handedly that had changed the course of my entire life and it was a black and white portrait of a man and he was holding a sign and it said you know I I always wondered why someone didn't do something about that and I realized I was somebody and I think that was kind of like that photo I would say has become the motto of my life because you know like we tend to at least I don't know about you but I do tend to like deflect responsibility onto other people thinking that you know somebody else will fix this problem and that I think is one of the biggest problems in our society is thinking that someone else out there is going <laughs> to fix the problem. It's like, who's that out there person? Like they, they uh-huh. don't exist, right? Like the only out there people are us. And so anyways, more fast forward, mm-hmm. long tantrum, but it, <laughs> more of us. And then um, I'm partnered with my, um, one of my coworkers at the time, her name was Chrissy. She was also waitress at that restaurant and her and I got together. We joined an incubator. Where they basically just like adopted us startup versions because I was not in like startup mentality at all. I was in like, oh, please save the world, barefoot tree hugging hippie, and they just want to start all the time. Um, and so they basically gave us like a fundamental background of lean startup and businesses and everything from A to Z. So Chrissy and I kind of divided our strengths and weaknesses. She was really good at operations and execution. I was great at ideation, marketing, storytelling, creative side. And so we really had created this yin and yang partnership and then we started to upcycle all of the food waste from restaurants but i should be specifically rescuing rice because rice is the number one wasted food in restaurant industries um we repurposed it into a flour we sold that flour and then we also baked goods with that flour and the primary product that we sold were these cookies that were phenomenal and amazing and i miss them every day um (laughs) But yeah, and then after six years, we grew the team. We started working with some of the biggest biggest restaurant trades in the nation. We've upcycled 50,000 pounds of food. I don't know what that is in kilos, but... Um, <laughs> wow. And we ended up upcycling different products like juice pulp. We partnered with Starbucks, got their coffee grounds. We partnered with um, grocery stores. I just kind of expanded and experimented with all these different types of you know food waste. And, and I, I guess the point I want to emphasize here is like, waste is only waste if someone wastes it right so like you know it's crazy because in the restaurant we worked at somewhat of a high-end restaurant and you know let's say the restaurant closes at nine at eight fifty, we would sell the same bowl of rice plus veggies and protein or whatever for 20 plus dollars the moment that mm-hmm. that clock hits nine o'clock 15 minutes later 10 minutes later it's trash and waste and throws in a dumpster so that concept I couldn't really wrap my mind around. <clears throat> so that's kind of like the theme that I wanted to, and I think, you know, that kind of is a common pattern in my life. But um, yeah, so after six years, with some reasons I'm sure we can get into, but we decided to shut the business down. And yeah, now we um, 
that was one of the hard is it is hands down the hardest thing I think I've ever had to do in my adult life. <laughs> but I think it was for the best. No, I know it was for the best. I totally understand that. I imagine there would have been almost like a denial period, almost like when you know you're going to break up with someone or like, you know, the relationship needs to end and like, no, it's good. Like this is, you know, the future tripping and, you know, it's co-founder relationships and businesses are just like romantic relationships in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's, it's tied up in all of like the dreams you had for the future and how you pictured it would go. And I, I applaud you for like being able to make that decision. I, don't share anything you're not comfortable with, but I'd love to stay there for a minute and talk about kind of what made you be like, okay, I think this is not like, this is the time. Yeah. So, um, several reasons. First COVID hit us. Right. And that just came, um, obviously unexpectedly for everyone, but I think what COVID really shook us was for the first time we had to stop, right. We were in this like startup grind and we were you know I live in or I lived in San Diego at the time and I would say we were almost like San Diego's startup sweethearts like everybody loved us our story was so cute and marketable let's be honest like two you waitresses wanting to save the world with two days <laughs> one cookie at a time it's such a wholesome story and it was and Anna, it genuinely was that um and so we had a lot of external expectations what I felt at least on us to perform and to achieve and to be successful and to constantly grow. Um, But I think I also put those expectations on myself because I was like, no, we're going to find a solution because all these chefs have doubted us and all these people were like, there's no way you can do it. And so that almost gave me the the fuel. So we were working just insane hours. (laughs) Like I can, you know, share a little bit of the beginning moments, but, you know, Chrissy and I, we were school full time we started working just part-time and then we were doing so much part-time. So it was the, the business was called so much. And so, you know, we'd go to school and then we would work a shift at the restaurant for a couple hours. And then after that, we would go to the bake, you know, commercial kitchen at the time before we had our own facility. And, um, we would work from like 10 PM to 5 AM because those oh were the God. night owl hours. They were the cheap out there. the cheapest hours. We're broke college kids, right? Like we're, we're using our financial aid and loan money to fund this business. And then we would try and get a few hours of sleep by few. I mean like two, and then we'd go to school by 9 AM, go to school and then da, 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 and then just do that cycle again and again. And so we were working nonstop. And so when COVID came, I mean, at some point we kind of were able to get a rhythm and like, that was obviously the early stages, but we were still grinding pretty hard. And then there were, it almost became this culture within our team that I, if I could do again, I would, you know, definitely have a better balance. Um, but then COVID made us stop. And I think we realized how exhausted we were because, you know, a rock in motion stays in motion, but a rock standing still is so hard to move. And once we were just hit by this COVID train, we were like, oh, wait a second. I'm actually so exhausted and I'm mm. so tired. And like, do I even love this anymore because it's taking my soul and here I am trying to make this thing. It was once my soul, but now I feel like it's consuming me. And so I'll be honest, I feel like my co-founder and I didn't do a good job being very vulnerable with each other and communicating like, Hey, do you still love this baby that we co-birthed together? And I, well, I'm kind of feeling like I'm not loving it as much because we almost had this like shame around that. Mm. Um, And so that, started to subconsciously build up without us really communicating that thoroughly 
So there was a little bit of resentment going on there. Um, And then the biggest reason was there was this new food waste law in California that was making it really hard for what we were doing. Well, essentially, there was this mandate, you know, saying that all restaurants have to reduce their food waste by 20 percent. And then the food not the food waste, but the waste management companies, basically those big trash trucks, you know, that go around, they had seen what we were doing and that how we were profiting off of the waste. And they essentially lobbied the government to uh, make it illegal for upcycling and composting companies to charge for our services. It's like, I can get into those details of people really, but I'm trying to remember that this is more of a surf-based podcast. And not no, it's like great. A waste podcast. It's great. Yeah. Um, but I love waste. So we always talk. I always it's like all tied in together, waste. right? Surfing is all part of this culture. <laughs> so it's completely relevant. Yeah, yeah. So essentially that they basically the big trash bullies pushed us out and they saw us what we were doing and um, we could have fought, we could have went to court, but at that point, both Chrissy and I, our cups were so dry that we had to make the tough decision like, okay, do we pour from an empty cup? And that was honestly one of the hardest things for me to stomach because nobody else could have fought these big waste management companies as well as we could. We had six years of quantified data to show like how we were reducing the waste, how we were a much better alternative than they were, and how we were actually reducing greenhouse gases, you know, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I were to think like, if anyone could take these monsters down, it's us. And if, mm. if not us, then who, right? Like that's been my philosophy forever. And for the first time I had to be like, if not us, if not you, like if you can't, if you don't, if you're not even here to be able to be here, then th- you won't even be here for other future battles to fight. And so that I had oh, a lot of therapy for that one. Um, <laughs> to really, and still, I, to be honest, I battle with it sometimes because I struggle with the shame and the guilt that I have that we didn't fight for that. Um, but yeah, both Chrissy and I were so burnt out and, and I think that there was some hard moments for us. And, and I also don't think that we talked about co-founder struggles as well. And no. we struggled a little bit. We worked so well together, but I would say the last years were really tough for last year, year and a half was really tough and there just wasn't clear communication. I think there was a lot of shame and mm-hmm resentment that had built up and we actually were about to sell the company and we had the dream buyers the dream buyers like these guys were the executives and were the ones who worked with chips ahoy and oreo and not that those were at all in alignment to the brand that we were but they know cookies better than we knew Mm -hmm. cookies right um they got this really famous vegan cookie brand in trader joe's and and they saw us as jackpot because they're like oh my gosh here we are, we've worked, you know, our whole careers working for shit cookie companies <laughs> that really are super just using palm oil and not environmentally friendly and very, you know, unhealthy ingredients. They wanted to do something better. They wanted to hop on the feel good, you know, bandwagon. They saw us, you know, we're vegan, very compostable, very marketable story. And they were like, oh my God, we want to buy it. It was amazing. But then... I remember they were supposed to sign the contract June 3rd and we had done like maybe four or five months of flirting back and forth, dancing, you know, doing the due diligence with the lawyers, the contracts, all these things. And then June 1st on my birthday, they actually, the night before they're like, yeah, so this new food waste law, we're a little confused by it. We're not really sure. So we're going to pull out. And oh my we God. were devastated, devastated <laughs> because 
not only did this feel at least like, okay, I'm not a failure because at least I can sell the company and at least, not even sell the company, but at least food will still be being rescued, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the fundamental DNA of what so much was, was rescuing food. So for me, like, of course there's ego. I'm not going to lie. Like the status of knowing that my company could have lived on. Like if I really dig deep, I think where the biggest tragedy was is just now now knowing that this food at these restaurants that we were once rescuing, we had this whole system of which to reduce is now just going back to its old ways. Um, and so, yeah, it was devastating. And then at that point, Chrissy looked at me and was like, I'm done. Like, I'm absolutely done. And I said, okay, let's just sell our assets and move on. And we literally sold everything we owned in two months. And all we had a commercial kitchen, we had a refrigerated van, we had industrial ovens and everything that we had worked so so hard to get like every piece of machinery every equipment everything we did was so grassroots we never took out a loan everything was we had won grants and pitch competitions and all those things but even those were earned right so yeah it was it was hard oh my gosh thank (laughs) you so much for sharing that thank you so much because the truth is you know we just see people's businesses like the launch we see all the highlights and then if it if they sell it or it or like it doesn't work then we just see it disappear we don't hear enough of these stories and how tied up with our relationships with our ego with not and but also our sense of self as well like we identify with our brands and I'm sure at one point especially if you're putting so much time and love into it and it's so tied up with what you're passionate about there can also be this perspective that this is me and without Mm -hmm. this who am I Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I I think that was the hardest part, right, is that I identified as the CEO co-founder. And I didn't even think that, that I wanted that, to be honest, because I didn't even want to start the business. But at some point, it did get to me. It did boost my ego. And then also being around all these other girl bosses. And I listened to your episode with Girl, but it was such a good episode you did with, um, with Ali. Uh, yeah, with Ali about <laughs> the girl boss stereotype, I guess. Um mm-hmm. But I was just so in the entrepreneur startup world. And then I think that's amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love it. And I thrived in it. But um, it was, yeah, I, I had so much of my identity. And I guess if I'm being really vulnerable with you, it was almost like what we were doing was so wholesome. And it was so from the heart. It was so genuine that I almost felt like people liked me because of it. And people respected me because of it. And I almost... I remember crying to my best friend, not like super vulnerable, like on my kitchen floor when it was all happening. And I was like, will people still like me? Will people still (laughs) respect me? Like, you know, like what she's like, what are you talking about? Of course they don't like, it's, they like, you started that because of who you are and your morals and your values. And that's what won't change, you know? And obviously it's easier said than done. She was saying it and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was yeah. listening at the you time. You don't hear it at the time. <laughs> I, even if I needed to hear it, I couldn't. But um, I think if I dig down to my most bare self, that was it was, you know, would people still like me? Would people still respect me? I felt that people almost wanted to talk to me. People wanted me on their podcast. People wanted me in their, to speak at their schools or universities because of this thing I had done. And now I had quote unquote failed or no longer succeeded. Would I still have that prestige in a sense? And so, yeah, that really, really affected my identity and sense of self. And to be honest, I feel I'm still figuring that out, but um, definitely feel much stronger than I was just a year or a year and a half ago. We all know exercise makes life better. 
our mood, our energy, just our general outlook on life improves. But sometimes it can feel like too much of a mission to get to a gym or to commit to a full hour workout. You're busy, I'm busy, life is hectic. The Salty Club makes it easier than ever to sharpen your mind, body and soul with online equipment-free workouts starting as short as 7 minutes all the way up to 50-minute classes. You can choose one-off classes or commit to a whole program where every class is planned out for you for a series of weeks. And the best bit? You'll be able to talk and share with other women in our group chat for that extra dose of motivation. The Salty Club is $19 a month, but you can try it absolutely free for one whole month with the exclusive code to this podcast. You'll go to the website, thesalty.club, and then the code you will use is SCLUBPOD. So S-C-L-U-B-P-O-D. I'm so happy to hear that. And, you know, I'm sure the healing takes a long time and goes in cycles. And But it's just so good that you're sharing with it because I just think of how many people are listening to this who are having a, a similar situation, having the shame, having the doubt, having the the grieving to be like, okay, this is actually part of it. It's doesn't, yeah. nothing has gone wrong. This is actually on the journey and this is what we have to go through and the decisions we have to make. The same as when we decide it's time to leave a relationship or the same as, as when someone leaves us, like, this is all part of it. It's not deviating from the straight shot to like eternal success. This is Absolutely. part of the whole ecosystem. And it's so funny because I got into my head too at one point about the club. And I think for us, the pandemic was when everyone went online. So that was actually our peak. And that was when I started to identify with this whole boss babe thing. Like I haven't happened, mm. like really like I'm a part of the salty club. And then I also had this feeling too, like, who am I without this? And then I went home and my friends were like, what do you do again? You know, and it's just this thing of like how we get into our heads about these things. Or someone's like, yeah, I like what you write on the internet, like from years ago. It's like, oh, you don't even really like and me and Erica and MC, my co-founders of the club have spoke about this before, that we almost think that people automatically know what the club is. And then when we talk yeah. to people and they go, so what do you do? It's like, oh yeah, yeah. it's just, you know. We're yeah. all like slightly narcissistic in uh, exactly. our own little ways, right? Yeah. Like we all think about ourselves all the time. <laughs> exactly. And it's so yeah. funny. It's like, oh my goodness. Exactly. <laughs> what will people think of me? Might exactly. not register with as many people as you think. They probably like yeah. you just because of who you are and what you're about. Like Your energy. Really and your the energy. energy, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that has, is something I have noticed about you is you do kind of radiate this like positive, upbeat oh. energy. And that can be something that is almost like contra like to the whole world of sustainability because it can be quite doom and gloom. And I'm sure as you've gone through your process, you know, the awakening, the getting the information, kind of learning about like ocean plastics and plastics, like I feel like when we learn something new, especially about something very intense about the state of the world, for me, it was like my privilege and really diving into that. Mm. There's almost this period of going into the rabbit hole and like mm -hmm. really not sleeping, not eating and really feeling sick and feeling angry. And it's almost like our bodies need time to systemize that information. And along the journey, we start to be like, okay, how can we sustainably have this as a part of our life? And how can we be, you know, I've interviewed people who help women recovering from domestic violence. I've, I've interviewed so many environmentalists. And a question I always ask is, how do you do this work without going under, you know? I love that you say the rabbit hole because that's what I call it too. And for anyone in that rabbit hole, oof, 
Oh my. <laughs> I, I almost picture it like the Alice in Wonderland, like when she falls in and it's just, you're just like, oh my God, the food, the GMOs, the, the pharmaceuticals, oh my God, <laughs> like, Sorry, this no, whole yeah. thing, you know? So, oh. um, and I feel like I've been in that rabbit hole a few times and I probably will be a few more, but um, something that really brings up to answer that question, like how do I stay positive in knowing <laughs> You know, ignorance is bliss to a sense, right? And mm. but at the end of the day, ignorance is still ignorance. But um, that was something I was actually just speaking about recently uh, with my friend because I really am getting into the whole Israel-Palestine situation right now and the whole, my Middle Eastern roots. And and I'm not going to get political in here, but it was really hurting me of everything that was happening. And I was like, man, like I wish if I just didn't have social media right now, like because I wasn't sleeping for two, three days, I was feeling really down. I was like, man, like ignorance really is bliss. They're like, yeah, but ignorance is still ignorance at the end of the day. So I think there's a balance. Um, but to answer that question for you, something that really brings up for me was I remember when I was in the thick of the rabbit hole and I was working at that restaurant and I was working as a waitress. And for some reason, there was this like crazy situation. I, it was a busy day at work, you know, and one of my coworkers asked me to go fill water at this one gentleman's table. And he wasn't part, he was at my table, but I was like, yeah, sure. I had a second or two. So I go and I don't really speak to the man, but he just looks at me and he goes, you look like you're carrying a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I was like, excuse me. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, you're a man's playing me right now. What's up? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I don't know, but you just seem like you're carrying a lot of unnecessary burden on yourself. And then I don't remember the exact details, but somehow I cracked open the, yeah, was, the world is falling apart and all these blah, 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 blah. <laughs> started just like reverberating all of these documentary facts that I've been like soaking into. Um, he's like, you know, and I remember this man, he was like an old Indian man with these hot red glasses and he was sitting by himself with his legs crossed with a nice button up shirt on the corner of the restaurant. And he goes, um, you know, worlds can feel really heavy and it is right but remember the world or anything in the world to function wherever there is yang there is always yang and where you focus your energy is where it will dictate your life he goes so do me a favor for every minute every hour that you spend looking up the atrocities of the world and the negative facts and the things that are all crucially important i think it is we need to learn these things we need to learn that we can't raise our earth a certain amount of degrees and our sea levels are rising and our, you know, land for waste management is disappearing. Like those things are, are important. He goes, but I promise me that you will spend equal amounts of time looking up people who are coming up with the solutions for those problems because there are out there. And that was game changer for me. So for every, you know, hour I spent looking up horrible facts about the world i would look up people amazing innovation and solutions and movements and and grassroots you know movements that were starting to to try and solve these issues and i think that that's honestly was one of the best advice i'd ever received and i don't know who this man was but man he like came into my life and was like oh thank you he, he i think he really saved my mental health because um i tend to care a lot and i think that that could be a good thing and a bad thing at the same time but um that would be my advice to anyone out there in the environmental world or if you're feeling that way, just remember. And even right now with what's happening with Israel and Palestine, I feel that I'm trying to look at all of the humanitarian organizations that are going in there and looking up all the different artists that are making beautiful art out of all of this and stuff. So mm -hmm. um, 
the peaceful yeah, protests actually. that are happening, like yeah, the the one about the Israel and Palestine women who did the walk together and like the mm. peaceful protest together. And I think that's so true. When you were saying that, like my heart just went like, Whoa, because yeah. how important it is for people to hear that, especially now, like you said, everyone's grabbing their phones. Everyone doesn't have any context for what's going on. It's just very, very scary and very, yeah. very graphic. So it's true. Like there is no value in just going down that road. So I think that's mm-hmm. such great advice to be like looking at what's happening with the humanitarian work, looking at the stories like, and so thank you for that. I think everyone who's listening to that right now can really relate with picking up their phone in the morning and being, and instantly their nervous system is like, oh my God, like I do not understand the scope of what's happening. Right. Yeah. But it's true. Also what you said, like ignorance is still ignorance. So striking that balance of being like, I want to be aware of what's happening. I want to be seeing. I don't want to turn away, but I also can't sink into that either. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Having a minute there to like, ooh. I know. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's oh a lot. Gosh. And yeah. something too I want to say is like going in that rabbit hole, I almost think is necess- like necessary in a way. Right, like, because anger is an emotion that at least I was taught to just dismiss and not have. Um, but anger, if harnessed correctly, propels action. So mm-hmm. we almost need that anger, right? Like, we need the emotion to fire us up. Emotion, and I just, I just recently touched upon this, but like, emotion is literally what creates movements. Emotions are what propels the world forward, and so, you know having that for me it was more like sadness than I would say anger but I, I think that they go hand in hand but I, I, I think if you're in that rabbit hole it's almost necessary to have that feel it feel that feel that sadness kind of sit there with it and allow yourself to just be upset with the world but don't allow it to paralyze you and don't stay there too long once you're there okay feel it grief it but then you need to make you know concrete actions or a plan of what you're going to do whether it's okay you realize the meat industry is crazy I want to start to cut out meat in my diet or whether you realize fast fashion is contributing to people in Bangladesh you know starving or you know human rights okay I'm gonna only shop secondhand like and then you know you know see what you can do and in, in, in what feels right for you so I, I think that as long as you have that anger let it sit with you but in a sense you kind of need it to propel action to move the world forward in a, in a way mm-hmm Totally. I totally agree. And I know one thing that you do is make a lot of your own kind of like products, like deodorant, shampoo, toothpaste, stuff like that. And I was thinking because you're such a traveler and traveling is so conducive to tiny little plastic packets of everything to make life more convenient, like um, having the food on the plane, like it's all in little compartments. I mean, I feel like it's one thing when you're, when you're stationed in one place to be like, yeah, this is my pot of like, this is my sourdough starter. This is my, this, this is my deodorant. How do you kind of maintain it when you're moving and you have to be really economic with what you're bringing and, and, and you're moving from place to place? Like, how do you kind of make it work? Great question. And this is funny because before I, you know, I've, traveled a lot quite a bit but just recently I had done like I'm on my year and a half sabbatical away from home and I had all my besties come the night before I left and help me get rid of all my stuff and I had like <laughs> buckets of you know 
coconut oil and baking soda and essential oils. I'm like, hey, what the hell is all of this? And I was like, these are all my ingredients. Like, I can't let them go. And I was literally like the day before I was leaving, I was making like mass batches of toothpaste and deodorant, my like makeup face powder and my moisturizer. And they're like, what? Right. Indonesia has toothpaste. They have deodorant. What are you doing? Like, you don't need to take this in your luggage. And I was like, no. I need to take a year's supply of toothpaste and I need to take a year's supply of deodorant because I have it. And that's just the products I use and I don't want to use plastic. And they're like, oh my gosh. So it's funny because I literally probably only bring like four outfits, but I'll, my suitcase is full <laughs> of like products that I, that I have. Um, mm. So it's actually like kind of funny. So I don't know if I'm the best person to answer this, but I would say I definitely prioritize those a lot. Like to me, mm. that is my priority, not only for the environment, like I would say the main reasons for the environment, but also my health. Like, I don't know what the hell those chemicals are putting in their deodorant and their toothpaste and their face wash and their moisturizers. And my body just reacts so well to all these natural products that I make that are basically all based with coconut oil, baking soda, let's be honest, with a mm-hmm. few essential oils and a few ingredients here and there in between. Um, and so my body just reacts really well with those. So I literally make huge batches of them. <laughs> Have you had any awkward airport them. experiences? Like, what is this? And you're like, ah, <laughs> that's my toothpaste. <laughs> oh, I have. And like, cause sometimes my toothpaste will melt or my deodorant will melt and it'll become yeah. a liquid. And I'm like, I'll have like the TSA people like, oh no, you can't take some. I'm like, oh, oh my hopes, you ain't finna tell me I can't take this. I'm gonna take this. I'm like, hey, it's coming out. And I just go like crazy on them. Because I'm a, I, get, I get a little bit psycho. Um, and then they're like, oh, my God, this girl's off the charts. Okay, just let her pass through. Just but I'm not – just take it. And I'm like, no, it's deodorant. I'll show it. I'm like putting it on my armpit in TSA. Like, I'll show you. <laughs> I'm like, what? You can eat it. It's toothpaste. And I'll like show my products. And, um, yeah, so they – let me go so I've had quite a few and then I'll take like a bunch of like baking soda or this or that people are like they have baking soda in other countries what are you doing I'm like yeah I know but I have it (laughs) yeah I already have it and you never know as well right like (laughs) sometimes it's hard to find certain things you take for granted you know some ingredients we think are just super easy for us you go to a different country and they don't use it like for example you can find wheat flour anywhere in Australia here corn flour is the base so it's really hard to actually just find some wheat flour for the cooking that I want to do so it's almost like you can't take for granted that they that the countries will have it either absolutely yeah that's so true so true I mean, I feel like a big block to people using natural products can be the cost because it tends to be a lot more expensive and I understand why. Um, So what would be your advice to people wanting to start to make their own products and and is it easier than one would think? Oh, I will tell people, y'all, I was a starving startup co-founder. So it is way cheaper to make your own products than it is to buy them. I mean, just with like anything, right? It's cheaper to make your own food than it is to buy it for the most part. Um, But I would say start to just like phase out your products slowly. Like don't just be like, Hey, today, tomorrow I'm going to make all my own products. Um, The way that I, at least approach that I recommend and what I had done was like, okay, as of January 1st, I'm not going to buy any new products. I'm going to either learn how to make it my own via zero waste or find an alternative on Etsy that's zero waste if I can't make it myself. And that approach, I think, is the healthiest for me and the most sustainable because I was like, okay, by the second week of January, I ran out of deodorant. So that was the first thing I learned how to do, how to make my own deodorant. And then toothpaste. And then by March, I ran out of shampoo and then kind of just started making products from there. And 
once you start getting in the groove of it and you start, maybe you follow a blogger or you follow someone's recipes that you really trust, you'll see that you don't have to do the trial and error work. They've already done it for you. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then you'll see that most all the products are with the same base. Like I said, coconut oil, baking soda, essential oils at some point, make sure you're trying to get them sustainably sourced. Um, and then like, you know, bar soap that you can just grate and put it into your laundry. soap. like, there's so much, it's really like once you have the staple ingredients and you can buy them in bulk, then you literally have everything. Like you have house cleaner to deodorant, to toothpaste, to shampoo, to literally moisturizer, literally everything. So, um, I would say oh, there's a little bit of a learning curve, but like, so what? There's a learning curve for everything. Like, I, mm-hmm. I don't really have empathy for people who are like, oh, I don't want it. I'm like, okay, well, it'll really <laughs> take you like a few times to learn how to do it. And then, and then all the ingredients are cheap, like baking soda and salt and coconut oil and all that stuff is not that expensive. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of my approach to that. Maybe a little harsh, but oops. <laughs> no, totally. I, th- I think it's true because it's like almost more instinctive to do it this way than to be buying it. And like you said, that you also have cleaning products, which is so expensive, you know, and they're so heavily perfumed and so heavily like chemicalized. The fact that you can have some core ingredients and pull from that. I think that's probably the main thing that people need to know is like, once Mm -hmm. you've got all those, you have your, your bank set up really. Absolutely. Yeah. Your bank. That's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, So you just did your speech we saw that. <laughs> that was really <laughs> special. Do you want to talk a little bit about that experience? Are you talking about the Global Wave conference? I am. Yes. Woo-hoo. Okay, cool. <laughs> well yeah. Done. So thank you. That was really exciting for me. And sh- I mean, I love public speaking. I know. I'm you do? I do. Oh my gosh. I do. I Good love for it. you. <laughs> I mean, I hate it and love Someone it. Someone needs honest, to. Because- <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I get in, like, it's the most, one of the most challenging things, right? Like, it, it's not easy to be on stage. And I think they said like they interviewed tons and tons of people and they said the number one fear of humans is public speaking. But when you strip that down and I actually understand why it is, it's because you have to be, you're on stage to be judged and to be analyzed. And that is like a big human fear for us. But Mm. um, yeah, so I, I, I absolutely love it. But for me, this was a pretty big moment because it was the first time that I gave a speech entirely without so much. Mm. And prior before that, I've been invited to speak at, you know, TEDx, United Nations, all these places for so much and all the other things that we were doing with the company. And this was the first time that I got to almost shed my skin for a new identity as a trash artist and wow. really show, yay, <laughs> really just show that. And, and at a surf conference, which was super cool. So there's like all the biggest, you know, heads in the world surfing culture um, in terms of sustainability was there and got to show how art can be one of the best forms of climate activism and the intersection between, you know, using the gifts that we have to really propel movements and drive change forward. Because, you know, when we just talk about facts and figures all day long, like that's not actually going to change anyone. It needs that emotional connection to like we started this podcast, that picture of that polar bear that, you know, was a direct line of my heart and made me want to change. So whether, and I said this in the speech, but like whether you're using music, podcasts, um, drawing, entrepreneurship, you're an athlete, a dancer, whatever it is, like your art can truly make 
someone emotional and, and make them move. And that to me is where I, I found the most um, receptiveness in climate action, right? Like I've kind of gone through quite a few identities as like an entrepreneur, like a climate entrepreneur. I went through like a vegan a vegan, like a super vegan influencer. And then I did like an eco tips influencer and then a zero waste influencer. And then I, I found success in a little bit of success in all of those. But to be honest, I found the most success. And what I mean by success is the most human receptiveness is through art. Because in a way, like, right, when I'm talking about vegan tips, or I'm saying, you know, bring your reusable bags here, or do this or do that. I'm kind of like pointing the finger and being like, you should do this. Mm -hmm. But when I'm making art, I just make a statement piece and it's up for the person to interpret it as they please. And it's not like pointing the finger at them so they don't feel attacked, but it's still making someone think, which at the end of the day is the goal, right? So um, I found personally through art, it's been the most receptive. People have been a lot more, let's say, awakened. so yeah, the, the speech was really amazing. It was cool to be in the room. I was sharing the stage with some other amazing artists um, from different walks of life. And so it was cool because that conference was very science heavy. And then to come in and it's like the artists at the end of the day, like, yeah, we're going to talk about art. Yeah. And, you know, it was really yeah. fun. And I'm sure it was a breath of fresh air for everyone too. You know, it can get very heavy, like listening to science after science. So I'm sure they needed that. And I think that's so great that it was kind of your first big talk beyond so much and I think the more you have those because there's going to be so many more you're just going to be invited to so many more of these things I know it um and I think that's just going to further like move like move you on from that chapter and be like oh of course I have this whole other thing outside of that like and I think that will just continue to happen absolutely yeah I I feel it I'm in that rhythm so it feels good yeah and I totally agree as well it's almost like if we want people to listen no one wants to have the finger pointed at them your instant reaction is defensiveness um, I noticed that in myself and and that's why I have started to notice too. That's it, art, poetry, comedy, you know, when mm. people's guards are down. I, yeah. It's amazing how much stuff I retain. And, and then I think after like, oh, they were getting a message in there. I didn't even realize because I was just <laughs> laughing my ass off. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm laughing because it's true. So they kind of got me, yeah. but it wasn't in this way of like, because mm-hmm. it doesn't get anyone anywhere. And and from looking at your artworks, you know, there's a lot of work and time that goes into collecting one specific piece. Could you please talk a little bit about like the different materials you've used for a few of them and and how long it takes to kind of, and and also having to hoard these things, I'm sure bottle caps and having to hoard thousands <laughs> of bottle caps isn't easy, you know, so it's it's an exercise in patience and vision. So I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, my roommates, I bless my roommates, man. They've seen me collect and hoard <laughs> the craziest things. The hardest one was the cigarette one because like bottle caps, they don't smell right. But like cigarette butts do. And so yeah. that's what they're like, Ray, you cannot keep this in the house. And I was like, I know, but where am I supposed to put it? And I didn't have like a studio or anything at the time. And I couldn't take it out the kitchen, like the, you know, so much is kitchen because we were making food there. So totally. um, bless my roommates for dealing with me and my craziness. But <laughs> Um, yeah, it's really cool. I think most of the pieces so far that I've made have just been each piece has been like specific for one trash item. And so I think that that's been at least my idea of like putting a message out there. Um, so yeah, it, like I thought the cigarette one, for example, that one took 10 months of collecting because I mean, not because there was a lack of cigarette butts. Unfortunately, there's an insane amount, but 
at least for that piece, I wanted the cigarette butts to be like perfectly looking. And if you were to look at the cigarette butts on the floor, they're all disintegrated and gross and, and, you know, falling apart. So, um, but now I would say I've graduated a little bit from that. And that actually, that project has started because, um, I started, I, every year I do like a random new year's resolution. I just do one, just one goal, but I do it for every single day or I'll like make that my thing. And that year I said, I'll pick up one piece of trash every single day <clears throat> on my walk or whatever I do. And the number one thing I kept seeing was cigarette butts. So that's actually where like the original, that piece started from. Mm-hmm. And so every day on my walk, I would just pick up. So it was kind of convenient for me because I was doing my walks anyway. But um, yeah, that w- I would say like in, in general now, I've been able to kind of outsource the trash in a way where I'll partner with Surfrider or I'll partner with different organizations that do beach cleanups so that I can focus more on actually making the art rather than the collection of that tra- the trash pieces. So mm-hmm. I've been in Portugal now for a couple months and I'd partnered with a few of the organizations here that do cleanups and they already have everything like sorted and organized. So I'll go there and I'll like pick out what I want, which is like a little kid going to a candy shop. And he's like, <laughs> and bottle caps or fishing nets that they already have all sorted and organized so that's been a lot more efficient Mm -hmm. oh that's great so would you go Portugal home now or do you have a few homes or I don't Mm -hmm. know at this moment I'm just very going with the flow and kind of seeing wherever there's opportunity to make art um and Portugal it's like it's just a good thing or a bad thing they have a lot of trash <laughs> so um so it's kind of in a way it's good for me but obviously not good for the environment but um I've been able to partner with a, quite a few organizations here and the Surfrider Europe is so active and really I've really connected with them here yeah I mean I've connected with Surfrider in the U.S. as well done quite a bit of partnerships with them but shout out to Surfrider Europe too because they're also just killing it and um yeah, they're doing such amazing things and they've been really helpful for me. And anytime I need anything or any pieces of trash or anything like that, they've always been like sorting me and connecting me with different people. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's been, it's beneficial. So it's cool. I'm getting to experience sustainability through Europe's lens as well, because I think I've been so in the U.S. for a while, seeing it through the U.S. world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of cool to get that dual perspective. How do you see it as different from the U.S. perspective? Um, great question. I haven't really thought about that, but I would say at least, okay, so for example, Surfrider Europe, and this is obviously just my perspective, but they're, I would say they're probably more involved with like legal action rather than individual action, where I find right. a little bit more in the US, maybe the Surfrider is more individual action rather, like they are doing a lot of, um, you know, policy change and so on, but maybe just a little bit different approach. And then the US, they sell gear and then they sell, you know, merchandise, so on and so forth. So it's just a little bit of a different approach. And actually the Global Wave conference, I really got to understand because I was sitting at the table with all of the directors of all the different surf riders from all around the world and really just got to be and absorb and listen to all of them. Um, I mean, ultimately we all have the same end goal, but just different approaches that how to get there. And so like Surfrider Europe right now, oh, I'm so excited. They are suing Denon, which is one of the biggest uh, food companies in the world. And they're one of the biggest plastic polluters ever. Like you go to Bali, you go to any Southeast Asia country and you see all the trash on the beaches. The number one and number two most littered item on those beaches are always typically a Denon product. No way. So, yeah. Wow. And that is statistics from 4Ocean and Sungai Watch. 
So from Indonesia, at least. And so um, Surfrider Europe is actually, Surfrider Europe, Zero Waste France, and Client Earth are all suing Denon for exceeding basically their plastic. I mean, don't quote me on this. You can look it up on the internet. But basically exceeding their allotted plastic usage. And it's a huge, incredible victory, at least in the surf world, because it's showing how, or sustainability world, because it's showing that you know, we can stand up to these big giants and we can actually hold them accountable. And that's what they're doing. And this lawsuit is taking a really long time. Um, but sneak peek, making, hopefully going to make, I don't know if I should be saying this, but going to be making an Say art it. piece. <laughs> <laughs> going to be making an art piece um, to kind of demonstrate the amazing efforts that they're doing and kind of showing all the top littered dead on products and you'll see that our piece so we're still brainstorming it now actually but um to kind of just demonstrate what they're doing and showing that you know I, to me I, I think this is like a david versus goliath battle and it's showing that you know we we can't hold these major corporations like if we can hold Denon accountable why can't we hold shell why can't we hold all the big oil and gas companies so to me that's kind of yeah. i see if we can have a victory in this then we can have a victory in many more um but yeah, so that's I agree. It it kind of breaks down this perception we might have, like, why even try? They always win. Mm-hmm. The big guy always wins. Why even try? So the more that we create examples like this is why we try, because they don't mm-hmm. always win, the more people can get like involved and get behind that because it just shows like they don't always win. There just needs to be like enough people on the right side of history or prepared to to work for it, right? I love that. That was very well said. Yeah. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, I just think it's, I think it's really incredible how you've kind of taken what you're specifically passionate about. I mean, sustainability, as you've seen over the years and also at this conference can just span so many different levels. It can be this individual action. It can be organized legal action on a mass scale. And I think that's great for people to hear because they might be like, well, I don't really want to make trash art. And it's like, that's fine. There's something for everyone to do that can be actionably done and probably without as much fuss as you would think, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like you have to upend your whole life. Like you said, you don't suddenly have to throw out all of your products at once and you shouldn't, you should finish them if you've already bought them, right? Like instead of, but this thing of like, see what works for you. I mean, what advice would you give to people who are now fired up? And and I know there's so many resources out there. I'm not going to ask you to be Google, but what is one thing you would tell people who are fired up and would like to start being a bit more conscious, doing their part? What would you say to them? Um, I would first say, yay, (laughs) like thank yourself for just being on, like you said, I guess the right side of history. Um, but yeah, I I think kind of like what we had said before is like, find what area feels good for you and start there small. So, and that's like a vague statement, but if I were to break that down, I'd be like, okay, let's say you're really passionate about fashion, right? So, okay. And you start learning about the fashion industry start there and start seeing how you can greenify your closet and greenify your actions within the fashion world. And then let that trickle slowly in other aspects of your world. Because I I think, you know, you can't have one without the other. So once you start, you know, doing green fashion, then you'll start to think about green products. And then it kind of just is like a ripple effect from that. So start to see, and we, we need that, right? Like we need people from all these who have different interests, who have different um, hobbies who have different artistic talents and to really like propel this movement forward. Like I'm not super into fashion, but I really respect the people that are who really, you know, propel that movement forward. And people might not that be into the art that I make, but they can at least see it from afar and respect it. So 
Um, I think kind of what we had both shared is, is find your niche, find the part that really makes you fired up and start with that and kind of roll with it from there. Because I think, like I said, once you start rolling, then it's, it's quite easy to go in and also follow accounts that inspire you on social media. We spend so much time on that. Like, I think for me, I started following a lot of green hashtags like zero waste living and eco-friendly this, plastic free this, and then just started looking Etsy's amazing. I would say start looking on Etsy if you have any, if you want to greenify any part of you, like whether it's a loofah or mascara. I, I buy my face makeup from this amazing girl on Etsy and I've been supporting her for years and she makes it out of clay and it's all wow. sustainable and zero waste. And I found her just on Etsy and I still support her. So um, if you have any, you want to switch to an eco friendly product, literally just type in zero waste blank. <laughs> no joke. And you're supporting small business. So it's really amazing um so yeah I would say who you follow really dictates how you become as much as we want to say we're independent and we're free thinkers we are so we are sponges at the end of the day Mm -hmm. and then use different resources I would say I promote Etsy but just I just think it's such an incredible platform in the in the world of sustainability so that'd be I guess my advice thank you that's great start small I think that's perfect in light of everything we spoke about today, we went through a whole range of different topics. Is there <laughs> anything before we wrap it up that you feel like you'd like to just kind of finish up or address anything you felt like you'd like to dive in a little more? It's funny. We didn't talk about surfing at all. Oh my I God. Think- <laughs> I <know. laughs> or movement, which is the reason I really <laughs> in this club. So it's just so funny. Like, I know, um, it's true. We'll have a part two. Yeah, we definitely, <laughs> definitely should. Um, I think I, I honestly feel like we touched on so much and if you've made it this part of the podcast, kudos to you. But um, in terms of what's happening with the world, I guess just to sum up and conclude of everything, like if you are feeling in the rabbit hole, just know, do yourself a favor and look up solutions, get inspired by people that are really innovatively thinking outside the box. And even if that that's not something that you like to do, supporting those people that do is really important. We need all sides and people on different aspects and then starting small finding out like what inspires you what makes whether you're a foodie or whether you're a fashionista whatever it is that um you know really makes your heart just on fire you know that that really can go a long way and who you surround yourself with what you listen to what you follow on instagram like if you're following people that just like i had to go i still go through so many instagram cleanses like this model doesn't make me feel good or this person is just promoting consumption and always just selling me products. And I like this person, but they're always just selling me things and I really want to not buy more things. So I just, you know, go through those like cleansing Mm. processes, really just treat yourself as if you were to have a child and like, what would you want your child to see? Would you want them to see all these things? And then kind of like go through it through that perspective. Um, Be really cautious of the things you're absorbing into yourself and I guess, yeah, just remember that wherever there's yin, there's yang. And wherever you focus, if you focus on the darkness, which to some extent a little bit we do need because you can't have, you know, black without white. Um, but just remember to give equal amount of time invested into the positive as well. Thank you so much. That's so perfect. And thank you for ending it on that note. Ray, thank you for being here with us today. I had the best time talking to you and I can't wait to share this interview with our community. Thank you. I feel so recharged, honestly. It was a very energizing conversation. So thank you. (laughs) 
This podcast was brought to you by The Salty Club, hosted by me, Caitlin Creeper, and sound and editing by Matyosz Gomsch.